All right, John 4, 443, uh, we're going to go to verse 54 this morning. God's word uh, says this, after the two days he departed for Galilee. So remember, uh, we're taking up the story. He's, he's been in Samaria. He's ministering to the Samaritans, met with a Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, God ripped a harvest there. There's people that are coming to know Jesus, and now he's traveling back to Galilee. Verse 44 says, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has, prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So he's going back to his homeland. Verse 45, so when he came to Galilee, The Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So they're kind of recollecting on the things that occurred at the temple a few weeks ago. Brian, one of our elders, preached on that. Verse 46, so he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. So this official is a government official, probably among Herod's court. Uh, Verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, hear this, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to jump straight into our main idea for this morning. Our main idea for the passage comes from verse 50. Uh, The main idea is this, the power of Jesus transcends proximity. The power of Jesus transcends proximity or space. Uh, We're going to look at the omnipotence of Jesus. The central point of this passage, again, is found in verse 50. uh, When Jesus says these things, he says, go to to the man, go, your son will live. And then hear this, the response from the man. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and what? Went on his way, went heading back to home. Within this, this passage lies the tension of, of this, of the power of Jesus, okay, his powerful works, and the faith of those in proximity to Jesus. It, it's clear there are some who are following Jesus merely for his power, but the true test of faith is this. It's confidence not only in his power, it's confidence in his power and also this, the word of Jesus. It's confidence in the power of Jesus and the word of Jesus. The purpose of John's gospel, as we've, we've gone along, hopefully you have this memorized now, is that we would come to know Jesus. He states that very clearly towards the end of his gospel. Here also we see the, the power of Jesus which transcends uh, proximity or space, nearness. The, the child is healed and, and Jesus is nowhere near him. In fact, geographically, he's probably about 20 miles away from where this child is lying sick and on, on kind of the doorstep of death. His word and his power were enough. His word and his power are enough. And so we ask this question when we come to a text. What does this tell us about Jesus? 
what does this tell us about Jesus? It tells us this. He is indeed all-powerful. We use this word when we talk to the all-powerfulness of God. We say that he's omnipotent. He's omnipotent. What else does this tell us? It tells us he, he is more than a mere man, okay? He's not just a man. He's more than that. Okay, we know that he's a man because in the passage we've been in in the last few weeks, Jesus came to a well in Samaria and he was what? He was weary, he was thirsty, he was hungry. Those are all kind of attributes that we share in, right? We all become tired, we all become thirsty, we all become hungry. So we know for certain that he is this. We want to say this, Jesus is fully human, that he is indeed fully human. But also we see now in his power displayed in this passage that he is fully God. Jesus is fully human, fully man, fully God. How can we come to this conclusion? Because this passage, history, okay, this is history. This happened in history. It's not just some sort of legend or folklore. This passage speaks of the omnipotence of Jesus. Would you say that word with me, omnipotence? Good job. It's a theological word that we use for the power of God. And it's, and it's a power that transcends proximity. Okay, It goes beyond just being near to Jesus. Jesus is in, is in control and power over everything. That's the God that we serve. We witness this in two different ways. Uh, this mentioned in verse 54 that it was the second sign of Jesus. If you recall, the first sign was when he was at a wedding feast in Cana, and that first sign was that he transformed water, a created element, into wine. Okay, so we see the power of Jesus over the created order. Things that he spoke into existence, he's able to transform. And now the beauty of this is we see the power of Jesus now over the pinnacle of his creation. We know that humanity is made in the image and likeness of God. And when God created man and woman... Okay, all before that account, he creates and he says, that's good, that's good, that's good. Then he creates humanity, his word says, in his image and likeness, and he says this, that's very good. That's very good. And so the pinnacle of creation, humanity, Jesus is indeed powerful over the conditions that we are subjected to, the conditions of the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned, sin, sin entered creation, the creation has fallen, and so we have the results of that is sickness and disease. I'm going to say this a few times, I'm tired of praying for people to be healed from cancer, I'm tired of disease, I'm tired of sickness, who's with me? Hey, we will continue to pray for those things, obviously, as, as the family of God, for our brothers and sisters who struggle, or our family members who struggle. But I'm tired of praying for those things because they remind me that we continue to live in a creation that's fallen and it's under the curse of sin, as we call it. But Jesus is, in fact, over these things. He has power to heal. Jesus is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. And his power transcends proximity. We also see this, not only his power, but we see the power of the word of Jesus. We see power in his words. Paul says this in Romans 10. I love Romans 10. It says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through what? The word of Christ. 
And so we come to a question in a wrestling. Is, is his word enough for faith? Or are miracles and signs of power necessary? You see, I've come across in my walk with Christ, I've come across people that have experienced miracles. Or where their circumstances are so hopeless, things that, that they're in, the situation they're in is so hopeless, and then they change on the, on the drop of a hat that it only can be attributed to the power of God working in that situation. It wasn't just circumstances changing, but God directing steps in that situation. But unfortunately, I've witnessed people also that have experienced that, but as time and distance moves away from that event, their, their faith in God kind of wanes because it was resting on the power of the miracle alone and not on the word of Christ also. And, they, and as they... As they get distance from that, they forget, in a sense, kind of the promises they made to God coming out of that situation, and then their faith begins to wane, and it, it just kind of becomes apathetic and lazy. And so we, obviously, we don't want a faith like that. We want a faith that, a faith that rests on the power of Jesus and the word of Jesus, his words to us. Not just on displays of power and miracles, but on the very word of Christ. We have the word of Christ right here. Okay, not just the words in red. They're all from Jesus. This is possibly what Jesus is getting at. He responds to this man when this man makes a request. He says this interesting statement. It kind of stings a little bit when I read it. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. What's the truth? The truth is this, is the name of our sermon today. Jesus is more than a miracle worker. Okay, Jesus is more than your genie in a bottle with three wishes. He's the son of God. He's omnipotent. He's God in the flesh. Is his word now enough for you to have faith in his promises? Who's been challenged by God in this way, right? Maybe you've said this, God, if you'll only help me in this way, I'll do this all the rest of my days, fill in the blank, right? You ever made that kind of challenge to God? God, if you'll only help me out in this situation, I promise you I'll do this. You know, maybe it was in that, that freak out moment where you needed to get somewhere in a hurry and you couldn't find the car keys. Anybody been there before? God, if you only help me find my car keys, I promise you, I'll be at church this Sunday. Man, that alarm clock went off. You hit snooze and just kept on sleeping. I think we've all been challenged in this way. I'm going to share with you this morning something that is, uh, I'm going to be vulnerable and transparent with you. I, I want this to be a church where we can be open with each other, where, where we can confess areas that we struggle with. And I feel as a pastor of this church that I need to model that for my church so that we're not just coming in and putting on a front and saying, yeah, everything's okay when we're really falling apart underneath. This is a place where we can have real conversations about real struggles that we have. And my hope is to model that for you this morning. And this is hard for me. Because oftentimes people put pastors on a pedestal like, oh, he's never struggled. He's never gone through anything. His life's perfect. It's fine. Uh, he's never been grieved by God or pressured by God or disciplined by God in, it, in any way. That's a lie, okay? Don't, don't put me on a pedestal. I've struggled with faith at times. I'm going to share my struggle with you in hopes that it will empower you to be honest about the ways that you struggle as well. Here was my personal struggle uh, with faith that God has brought me through. When I was 23 years old, 
Okay, my mother is 54 at the time. And my mom, when I was uh, in about sixth grade, she led me to Christ. I, we were going to church, and I started questioning things. And I can remember her praying with me by my bedside as I received Jesus. I was baptized a short time after that. My mom was inst- God used my mom uh, instrumentally in my faith, in coming to faith. She was my primary discipler when I was growing up. At 23 years old, my mom, now 54, pretty young, right? young. She received the diagnosis. Now, my mom had always had a a lot of health problems. She had heart surgery at 19 years old, I believe. And at that point, she received a a diagnosis that she was having a lot of health problems. The doctor had diagnosed her with something with her heart and her lungs, and it was terminal. It was a terminal diagnosis. Doctor gave her about a year to live. At this point in time, I wasn't always in pastoral ministry. Uh, I was managing a store about an hour and a half away from where I lived, and so I commuted back and forth an hour and a half, about 90 miles each way every day. And while I was driving, I would turn my radio off so I could have some silence, and I would pray, and I prayed earnestly to the Lord every single day that he would please heal my mom because there was conversations my mom and I were having. I would call her every day when I would drive home that we were having. At, at the time, Haley was pretty young. She's my oldest daughter. My wife was pregnant with my son, Jordan. And I can remember my mother saying, I, the thing that grieves me the most is that my grandchildren aren't going to know me. And I, I kept praying for my mom. Like, Lord, and, and my prayers were very, God, would you please heal my mother? Every day. For a year. Okay, God didn't choose to do that. My mom got very sick, and she passed away a year later. And it rocked my faith. And I'm going to be transparent and vulnerable with you because I can guarantee that some of you in this room have had things that have rocked your faith. And how can we heal and grow out of these things if we don't confess them one to another, if we don't bear one another's burdens, if we don't build each other up? If we tuck these things away and say, God, I'm never going to talk about this. I'm confessing this now to uh, probably 150, 160 people between last service and this service. And I'm not saying that to boost myself up. I'm saying this is hard to do. And I, I didn't hate God, but I didn't like God very much in that season of my life. And you know, it's okay. God's a big God. There's a lot of prayers in here that... You see people wrestling with questions of God. Read the Psalms for a little bit. Most of them are laments. God's okay. He can handle me questioning him and in a sense kind of just wrestling through his goodness. And so I I struggled with that and I struggled to the point, fortunately we were in a church where the pastor preached just like we do here. He preached from the Bible each and every week. And the thing I struggled with with my pastor was that he, I knew him personally and he hadn't experienced any loss ever in his life. He had never had a family member that had really passed away, never really grieved the loss of a friend. Or, and so I couldn't, I couldn't relate to his words very much and he would preach these things and I can remember sitting out in the congregation and I didn't do this physically, but thinking in my head, just I want to plug my ears, I don't want to hear this. But God kept speaking to me through his word, through the word about Christ, encouraging me and helping me. And here I stand now today pastoring a church. 
You want to know the thing that grieves me the most is I went through uh, at that last church that I was at, uh, I, I was ordained as a pastor, and I had to stand. It was pretty rigorous. I had to make a doctrinal defense. And I had to type that all up and send it out to about 10 different pastors, some pastors that I had grown up under. And they came in and questioned, and questioned me in front of a, uh, an audience on my doctrinal stances, and I had to defend those things from Scripture. And as I shared my testimony in the beginning, I began to weep because my mom had, never knew that I became a pastor She never heard me preach. This was the woman that led me to the Lord. And I I struggled, and I confess that to you because we read this, and we want to be happy, and we should be, because we see this official son healed. But what about those of us who have gone through the greatest grief where we have called upon the Lord, please heal, please heal, And he doesn't answer in accordance with what our desires are. He answers in accordance with his will. And the beauty of it is, is that God has used this grief and pain in me to minister to countless people. Because it's hard to minister to people who are in grief when you've never felt it yourself. It's hard to minister to people who question the goodness of God in their life when they've never experienced the depth of pain that I felt when I saw my mom pass into eternity at 54. And here's the beautiful truth that I can hang on to. She, all of her health problems are gone. She's in the loving presence of Jesus. And I confess this personal struggle that I have with you, that the Lord has brought me through it. It rears its ugly head every once in a while, especially when I hear the Christmas song by Nat King Cole at Christmas time, because that was her favorite song. When I hear that, it's like, oh, man. Is it anybody else getting misty? So now as we move into the story, I, I give that to you, hopefully for those of you who have struggled through those times of praying for healing and you haven't seen God come through in the way that you've asked him to, but he's come through in other ways. I hope that's an encouragement to you and a, a building to you to be honest about those things and to open up and work through those, to wrestle through those. So we come to this question now as we dig into this passage. The question is this, what is faith? What is faith? Because we see in this passage a tension of faith. It says this, after, after the two days, he departed for Galilee. It says, this is an important statement. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Okay, I want to pause there. Perhaps John is alluding to the fact that many of the Jewish people, the Jewish community that he came to be Messiah to, will not ultimately, when the story all plays out, will not actually end up following after Jesus, placing their faith in his work. In fact, if we fast forward to the end of the story, there's going to be a time where Jesus is on trial with Pontius Pilate and he's standing next to an actual criminal, an insurrectionist who's probably killed people. And Pontius Pilate saying, who do you want to let go? And the crowd, the Jews, they cried out these words, crucify him, crucify him. These are the people that he came to save. And I want to encourage you, even in that, don't lose heart because God saved a remnant from those people. There were people that went on, the apostles who were Jews, who who proclaimed the gospel, and many were reconciled to Christ. 
Continuing in the passage, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Okay, that's interesting because right before that, it said Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So it's, I think it's kind of a forward-looking statement that John is giving us in his gospel. Why did they welcome him, though? This gives us some insight. It says, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, okay? So their faith at this point is based on just powerful signs. They haven't taken Jesus at his word. It says, for they too had gone to the feast, so they had seen what had happened. Skipping now to verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus is speaking to what's been talked about in verses 43 to 45. It's the tension of faith. We come to this question, is Jesus more than a miracle worker in your life? That's something I had to wrestle with, with, with the death of my mother. Is he just a miracle worker to me? Is he just a genie that I just want to, I want to rub the lamp and get my three wishes. And if he gives me what I want, I will love him and follow him. But if he doesn't, then I'm running away. Am I going to take Jesus at his word? John establishes a a prophet has no honor in his hometown. We know that in hindsight, most Jews will not follow after the Savior they had anticipated for centuries in this immediate time. There were many saved, we see that in the early church, but not most of them. The crowds did follow after Jesus for a season, but when it came to this, when it came to a depth of faith that was willing to follow in the midst of trial and tribulation, a faith that was willing to take Jesus at his word, and a faith that was willing to do this, to die to self and tradition and take up its cross and follow after him, most of them fled and ran. Because their faith was conditional on the miracles, the power of Jesus. They just wanted this. They wanted the healing, food supplying type Jesus, not the lay your life down and follow me type Jesus. When Jesus performed the way they wanted, they followed. But when it came time for Jesus to submit to the ultimate will of his father, many of them fled away. So what then is faith? That's our question. The author of Hebrews answers that for us in Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, now faith is the assurance. What does assurance mean? Confidence or positive declaration of things hoped for. The conviction, what's a conviction? It's a a firmly held belief of things not seen. Let's put it all together. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I love that the author of Hebrews scripture gives us that clear definition of faith. I I do want to be clear. Faith, Faith isn't blind. We don't just have a blind faith. There's evidence. Read Romans chapter 1. There is earthly evidence that points to the existence of God. Look around the creation. There's historical evidence that points to Jesus. Something radically transformed the world and transformed a people 2,000 years ago. His name is Jesus Christ. But in the end, if if you want to follow after Jesus, faith must be within your heart. It can't just be a surface level. You must be willing, no matter the circumstances, to continue to follow after Jesus, to take him at his word, to follow after Jesus as one who is, who is far more than just a miracle worker. Because at, at times you're going to pray for things to occur in a certain way, and it's going to seem like God didn't answer your prayer, but he always does. 
And so we're going we're gonna to examine this biblical definition of faith as we look to the government official's request. And so we see, point number one, we see a desperate faith. We see desperate faith. We see this, man, this man's desperate faith. He's, here's the circumstance. He's at the end of his rope. Okay, he has no hope of healing for his son. He's heard or he's witnessed for himself this powerful man, Jesus. He's come back kind of in proximity of where he's at. He hears of the arrival in, in his area, actually about 20 miles from his home. So it's about a 20 miles distance from where the official lived and where Jesus is now working. And in desperation, believes the man believes this, if, if I can just meet Jesus and, and if I can convince him to come back with me and to be close to my son, my son will be healed. He will be saved. This is where we pick the story up, verse 46 to 49. It says, so he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. So again, that's about 20 miles from where Jesus is at. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So he's so sick, he's about ready to die. He's hopeless. So Jesus said to him, this is interesting, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Come back with me. He's demanding here. He's an official. He's a government official. The man is desperate. How do we know? Because he's traveled 20 miles to get to Jesus. He's heard of Jesus or perhaps has witnessed himself the power of Jesus. And in desperation, he makes his way to him. He cries out to Jesus seeking healing for his son. And I want you to notice a few things. There's three things I want you to notice. He actively did this. He heard about Jesus. That's what the passage says. He heard about Jesus. The second thing he actively did is he went to Jesus. So he heard about Jesus, went to Jesus. Number three, he asked Jesus. He asked Jesus for something, didn't he? He made his request known. This in and of itself is, is an act of humble faith, of desperate faith in a sense, to the Lord. He believed enough to seek after Jesus, to go find this miracle worker, in a sense, who was a distance away and ask him directly, I'm face to face with Jesus. Would you please heal my beloved child? He invited and directed Jesus to come with them. Jesus, I believe this statement that he makes is in a sense kind of a test, a putting of pressure onto this man's faith. He makes a statement, and it's, it's aimed at the man. I do also believe there's, there's evidence in the original language that Jesus is also speaking to the crowd because the you, it says, unless you see signs, okay, the you there is plural in the original language. And wonders, you, plural, will not believe. So it's almost like he's speaking to the man, but also those in proximity that can hear. So what is Jesus doing? He's applying pressure to the man's faith. What is our faith if it never goes through any trial or pressure, right? It's real easy to say, I have faith in Jesus, but I've never gone through anything in my life. But what happens if, if you build a table and the table says it can support 500 pounds, but you've never put 500 pounds on it? Do you know if it supports 500 pounds or not? No, you got to put the pressure down on it to see if it can withstand the weight, if it can hold up, or are the legs going to break? 
It's the same thing with our faith. When God begins to apply pressure through circumstances in our life, oftentimes difficult circumstances, it's testing our faith to see if it's genuine or not. And this is, as much as you want to say, no, it's not, because it's not fun, this is grace from the Lord that he would do that for you. That he wouldn't just leave it at, at a surface level word, like, I have faith but that he would indeed apply pressure to that faith to see if it holds up, to see if, like our table, if the table passes the test or not. I think Jesus is is applying some pressure to the desperate faith of this man. And we should thank the Lord for the pressure that he puts on on our faith to prove its sincerity. This passage, we're going to bounce back and forth between Philippians 4. It reminds me of this exhortation of Paul in Philippians 4. Uh, 4 6. Philippians 4 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything. Anybody here anxious? Hey, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, hear this, by prayer. Okay, this man is in a sense praying to God by speaking to Jesus. So, what we do when we pray, we speak to Jesus. By prayer, it says, in supplication, that's not really a word we use much, by petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's a clear teaching of Scripture. Talk to God about it is what Paul's saying. This man is face to face with Jesus, making his request known to, to the Son of God, desperate and humble, And when we connect this now with the teachings of Paul to the Philippian church, we can, family, this is a practical application, we can come to the Lord, we need not be anxious about anything in life, rather we come with this with a heart of anticipation and desperation and humility, making our requests known and seeking the will of God and taking, hear this, taking Jesus at his word. It brings us to our second point, which is this, we see in this man a determined faith. We can also use the word persistent here, a persistent faith. Jesus says himself that he honors a a persistent faith or persistent prayer. He, He gives us a parable in Luke chapter 18 called the parable of the persistent widow. Verse 50 to 52 in John chapter 4, Jesus said to him, it's just, it's just like no drama, no crazy spells, okay? No like conjuring up spirits or anything. He, this is his response to the man. The man says, come down with me. And he says, go. Your son will live. Done. This is beautiful here now. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And what does he do? He proves his belief by obeying Jesus and walks. He goes away and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. Why? Because he's been healed. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Notice that yesterday too. We're going to get to that in just a second. Our main idea is the the power of Jesus transcends proximity, right? Space. 
You don't need to be physically close to Jesus to experience his power. And in this passage, we see in that same verse, verse 50, a second kind of parallel idea of importance, another main idea in a sense. It's the response of this man to Jesus, which is incredibly important to us as followers of Jesus. His response was this. It was to believe the word of Jesus and then go on his way to believe and obey the word of Christ. He believed Jesus to the extent that his former request or demand is abandoned, right? What was his initial request? That he would heal his, that he would come down and heal his son. But Jesus says, I can do better. Just go back home. He's already well. We get a time reference here in the passage. When he speaks with the servants, it says yesterday. It seems as though the man came to Jesus one day. We have to read into the story a little bit, so this is going to be more of my, my opinion. I'm just letting you know that. It, ha- it probably was late enough in the day or the distance was too great that he had to stop over along the way, like at night, a place of rest or safety. See, the roads were dangerous to travel at night. Or if he, say he rode a horse there to meet Jesus, his horse needed to rest as it came back about halfway through the journey in the night. The man probably spent the night somewhere and then continued on his way back to Capernaum. Here's something that we can learn from that detail that it was yesterday, is that he, not only did he have confidence in the word of Jesus that he went away, but he had enough confidence in the word of Jesus that he would have stayed at a place and then continued his journey in the morning. He had to stop overnight. Okay, he, he was at peace with what was going on. He then arrives the next day being met by his servants who inform him that his son has been healed. We find that it, that it was the exact time frame that this man had spoken with Jesus. That's amazing. I love that that details in the, in the story. This man's faith now is more than desperation. It's now determined. He's, he's determined upon the words of God, Jesus in the flesh. And there seems to be, in him staying, I believe, overnight, there seems to be a surety of the, of the words of the Lord. He believes, and belief gave way to confidence, and in a sense, kind of a sense of peace. Okay, Philippians 4, again, going back to Philippians 4, 7. I love this verse. It's one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. It says this, And the peace of God, hear this, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I believe that's what this man has here. He has a peace about what Jesus has said, his word, and this peace surpasses all understanding because, man, if my kid is sick, I'm finishing that journey all the way through. I want to get back and see what's going on. But this man had a surety about the word of Christ that he was able to stop and rest and then continue his journey the next day. I don't know about you, but I want a peace like that especially after last night because the guys like two neighborhoods over were reenacting the American Revolutionary War till about midnight. You know what I'm saying? This man, upon hearing the words of Christ, has enough of a peace about him that he likely stayed somewhere along the way and then made his way home. I pray this for you 
As a shepherd, I love each and every one of you under my care. The elders love you. We pray this for you. We pray that you would find peace that surpasses all understanding. I can tell you this, each and every time I've, I've been with somebody in our church, uh, the bedside in the hospital or grieving the loss of a loved one, I pray that prayer each and every time that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, would come upon that person. God, give us a peace like that. Point number three, we see a legacy faith. We see legacy faith. A legacy is something that goes on. Okay, as a father, this is going to get personal now. As a father, my first pastoral calling is to my family. Okay, you're not my first pastoral calling. You're of high importance, but my family, my wife and my children are of utmost importance in my calling to shepherd and pastor. Men, those of you who have families, your first calling in life, you are pastors also to shepherd your family, to shepherd your children in the ways of the Lord, in the word of the Lord. That you would lead your family in such a way that your children and your grandchildren will come to know the saving, peace-surpassing love of Jesus Christ. It's my first calling is my children. And I I can tell you this because I've experienced this. There's nothing that compares with your children knowing Jesus and seeing the evidence of their relationship with Jesus in everyday life. There's nothing like seeing your kids make a profession of faith and then go into the waters of baptism and be immersed and brought back up out of that water. And it's also one of the things that I admire about our more mature congregants here at North Bullet Christian Church. Many of you in this room have a legacy of belief in your family. You've served and loved Jesus, and then your kids are serving and loving Jesus, and many of you, your grandkids are serving and loving Jesus. It's my hope and prayer for my own family that I would leave a legacy of faith And we find the emergence of this legacy at the end of this passage. It's the beginnings of it. Where do we find this at? Verse 53 to 54. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So it's kind of thinking back on that now. And then this is what I want to point out to you. And he himself believed, hear this, and all his household. His whole family, probably his servants, whoever worked for him. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. The nature of our, of our Christian faith, confidence, hope is that it would be, in a sense, infectious to those around us, that, people, that it's contagious, that people catch it. Okay, and not the negative contagious, the good contagious. He himself believed in all his household, his family. This is the legacy of Jesus upon this family, that they had physical needs. Jesus dealt with those. But more importantly, they had deep spiritual needs. Uh, They were dead. Scripture tells us this. They were all dead in their transgressions and sin, and they were made alive together with Jesus Christ. They physically came to know the saving power of Jesus and their spiritual condition was also healed. They all believed in the power and the word of Jesus. My hope is that we all desire this powerful legacy for our our families. And also we have spiritual family for our churches. That we have legacy faith. 
we see the, the legacy of belief continue in the local church, our spiritual family, that we continue to see our young come to know the saving power of Jesus, and we invest and we love them and disciple them and raise them up so that the cycle can continue until the return of Christ. May our physical families and our spiritual families all sing in praise like Paul, going back to our passage in, in Philippians 4, rewinding back now to the beginning of that exhortation that Paul gives to this church, verses 4 and 5. This is my hope, that we would sing in this way. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And finally, oftentimes we get stuck right here in the present. We're looking at our present situation, the present physical struggles that we have, spiritual struggles. But I want to take your eyes and I want you to look at the horizon. I want you to look at what's off in the distance, the promises of Scripture. This is the Word of God also. These are the words of Jesus also. That we look to the ultimate end of the story. Again, going back to uh, the beginning point I was making, I'm, I'm tired of sickness and disease. I'm tired of death. I'm tired of praying for cancer. I want to look forward to a day when Jesus is going to come back and rid the world of all those things, of all the sickness and the pain and the grief. A day when, when the prayer sheet will no longer be filled with requests for healing from cancer and blood clots and heart conditions. A day when Jesus will finish what he ushered in. Jesus has begun a good work. In a sense, we see the promise of a future of the healing of every disease and affliction that we witness in Jesus' healing of this sick child. Jesus is giving us a foretaste of what he's going to accomplish when he returns, when he consummates his kingdom. And he tells us this in Revelation 21.4. He gives us this promise. Hear this promise. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Who wants some of that? And death shall be no more. Amen? Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Why? For the former things have passed away. 